Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Threw you all off, didn't I? Didn't say good morning. Well, it is good morning, and it's day after Christmas, and we're thankful to be here. And let's go ahead and open class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we again thank you for your love. Thank you for sending Jesus to to become our Savior and to uh, reveal the truth and to overcome sin and provide the the remedy and solution. We ask that your Spirit will take all of his achievements, uh, enlighten our minds, and reproduce our hearts to be like you. Join us today as we study that we can draw closer to you and become more effective in sharing this end-time message to prepare a world to meet you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing Lesson 2 in the Quarterly Isaiah, and the title is called The Crisis of Leadership. And the fifth paragraph in the Sabbath lesson says, people do indeed want strong, trustworthy leadership. When a soldier was signing up for a second term of duty, the army recruiter asked why he wanted to reenlist. I've tried civilian life, he said, but nobody is in charge out there. What does trustworthy leadership, strong, trustworthy leadership look like? When I was in the military... Strong leadership was emphasized, and a good commander did several things, or certain things. One, and I'll go through some of the things. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just an example. Some things. Never ask soldiers to do what he was unwilling to do if he were in their place. Uh, Share a soldier's experience. Uh, Go and do physical training with your soldiers. Go out into the field and do field exercises with your soldiers. Maintain the same fitness for duty, physical fitness, uh, weapons qualification, or any other certifications that your unit is required. You maintain the same fitness as your soldiers. Always ensure the troops eat and rest before you. At chow time, you go through chow line last when you're out in the field, particularly. Inspect the troops and require they maintain their gear, personal fitness, and cleanliness in good order. Ensure your troops have the resources they need to fulfill their mission. Ensure they take care of themselves, adequate hydration, food, rest. Inspect their feet on road marches to make sure they're not being injured and they're changing their socks and don't have wet feet. Discipline the troops who need it. These are just some of the actions a good leader in the military takes. And as you think about that, what is the purpose? Complete a mission. To complete a mission. Develop unit cohesion. So, so no question, complete a mission, keep the unit healthy, that's, that's, that's true. Is there, is there some purpose, though, that the commander wants to have on his troops? Success. Success. Okay, wants, absolutely wants them to be a success. What does he want the troops to know by these actions? That he's in authority. He loves them. That he's in charge? What else? That he supports them, that he loves them. Okay. He wants to know, he wants the troops to know he cares about their welfare. He understands them, their struggles, their work, what they have to do, what it takes to be qualified in their discipline because he's done it himself. He wants them to be the best that they can be. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and a good commander wants them, ultimately, he does all this, not only to have them fit, not only to know that he cares, but so that they will trust his leadership, trust him as their commander. It builds trust to have somebody invest in you consistently, reliably, by doing actions that are actually really for your good. Yes? Yeah. All of these will keep them alive. And then these things will help keep them alive. Yeah. Do you see Jesus doing the same things? Did he take our burden of sin and was he tempted in every way just like we are? 
that he knows our struggles? Does he ask us to do anything that he wouldn't do? Does he put us first? Ultimately, you know, he goes last. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Ultimately sacrificing himself for us. Does he discipline us if we need it so that we can develop to our max? Does he provide all that we need to fulfill whatever he's called us to do? Does he inspect us to see what we need and provide the interventions or therapies or discipline to strengthen us, pruning where we need to be pruned, fertilizing where we need to be fertilized, helping us grow? Uh, Has Jesus earned our trust and are we willing to follow his leadership? So as you think about leadership, what are the qualities that you want in a leader? You know, I did a lot of reading in preparation for class this week online, exploring multiple articles about what makes a great leader. I've got some qualities that have been listed in multiple sites of what makes a great leader. I'm going to just read some of them and ask your opinion, uh, basically, after you, we go down this list. Uh, was there anything on this list you didn't agree with, or would you agree? Yeah, all these things that help make a great leader. Honesty. Integrity, meaning owns one's mistakes, uh, puts safety and quality over profits, does what's right, moral or ethical, that's integrity, does the right thing. Sincerity and enthusiasm can inspire. Able uh, ability to listen to others and hear what other people are saying, basically understand and comprehend feedback and communication. Is decisive, can assimilate information, integrate it, and make decisions. Visionary has a vision where they want to go and a goal to achieve. Confident but humble. Confident but humble. Great communicator. Competent. Loyal to subordinates and the organization. Has loyalty. Won't sell you out. We're discussing going over qualities that make great leader delegates and empowers others and rejoices in their successes as a problem solver, self-disciplined and motivated, a self-starter, empathic, has emotional intelligence, high energy and resilient, loves, able to love, other-centered, puts the mission or others first, is just and fair, is kind, sensible or reasonable, Discerning, lover of truth, is a lifelong learner, follower of God's will, can forgive, doesn't hold grudges. Uh, Was there anything on this list of a good leader, qualities of a good leader that you disagreed with or thought should not be there? But let's go back through the list and ask the question, is there something missing on this list? I, I didn't disagree with any of them. But I I kept thinking, there's something missing. Is there something vital that this great comprehensive list doesn't have that even if we use this list, we still end up following bad leaders? For instance, honesty. We said honesty is a quality we want in a leader. If honesty is what most people want in the leader, and I think it is, if you if you take a poll, do you want an honest or dishonest leader? The answer is consistently an honest leader. That's what we want. People don't want a dishonest leader. But if that's the case, how come so many politicians are dishonest and they keep getting reelected? I mean, shown to be dishonest, but we keep reelecting them. 
How about integrity? Oh, by the way, can a person, back to the honest one, can a person be honest, yet be misguided, confused, or simply wrong? But they're honest. Uh, Integrity does what's right, moral, ethical. Uh, If integrity is what most people want in leaders, why are so many politicians in history been shown to have no integrity? And why do we keep getting elected? And can a person have integrity, real integrity, genuine integrity, but not understand the situation or how to address it? But they have integrity. Yes. Wendell? One thing I see is missing is, is direction. Direction to truth. Well, that was vision. We have a vision where we want to go. That was one of the things listed. They have a vision, but is the vision correct? Okay. Yep, no, that's, that's exactly right. It's a vision and a healthy direction. Okay, that's exactly right. And this is where we're going with this list. How about sincerity and enthusiasm can inspire others? Does it matter what the person is sincere about? If we have an honest person of good integrity with great charisma and enthusiasm as, our, as a leader, does that mean they know where they're going? Can someone be sincerely wrong? And honestly wrong. And passionately wrong. What about this quality? What about this quality? Loves others. Is other-centered. Puts others first. Would that make someone safe to follow? Can a person love others and put the mission first but have no idea what they're doing, where they're going, or how to fulfill the mission, but they love others? Can that be? Yes, it can be, folks. You can have other-centered, loving people who have no clue how to solve a problem. How about this? Can a person be completely self-centered? The whole motive is to exploit and take advantage, but they present themselves as interested in others and talk uh, and promote the idea that they're here to help, but they're actually exploitive. Can that be? Can you actually tell the heart motives of a public, public leader without having intimate relation or knowledge of them? How about just and fair? We certainly want someone's just and fair, but how can you determine if someone's just and fair? Can you tell by the reports you get of other people? They tell you how unjustly they were treated. If you don't know all the variables in the case, the secret details that are not made public, even when you hear the reports of people, can you really know whether it was just and fair? For instance, psychiatrists have a legal and ethical responsibility to protect confidentiality. We don't even disclose who is a patient. That's confidential and legally and morally and ethically required to not even disclose that whether somebody's my patient or not, a psychiatrist patient. What happens if a disgruntled patient goes online and writes a scathing review about the psychiatrist? All kinds of allegations and misrepresentations not of a legal nature, not of a crime, but of an uncaring, uncompassionate, hard-hearted practitioner. The psychiatrist cannot disclose even if they saw the person or not. They can't disclose, for instance, that this person was selling their controlled substance prescriptions and got arrested for doing that. The psychiatrist can't defend themselves. The psychiatrist can't talk about how this this person was getting a controlled substance, was abusing and overusing the substance, and so the psychiatrist wanted to refer them for a rehab program and taper them off of it. The psychiatrist can't do that. The person just leaves and goes, he didn't care. He didn't know, I needed this stuff. And Can you tell if someone's just or unjust? 
by the reports of others. How about if someone's kind or not? Can you tell if someone's kind or not? What determines what is kind and what is cruel? Can you always tell by the action itself? Or do the circumstances matter? Can people tell whether another person is kind or cruel based on how it feels? It felt unkind. It felt hurtful. That person's not kind because that hurt me or that hurt them. Can you tell whether someone's kind or cruel by whether it hurts? Is it kind to relieve someone's pain if they're, if they're hurting? Is that kind? Well, how about if it means doing their physical therapy for them? Because their physical therapy hurts them. Oh, let's relieve that pain. How about, if, would it be kind to prevent someone from feeling pain when they touch a hot stove? Would that be a kindness? There's a disease that does that. It's called leprosy. You don't feel pain when you touch a hot stove. You can't tell kindness by simply the report or the complaint or how it feels. You have to understand how reality works, whether it's restorative, redemptive, healing, not how it feels. How about sensible or reasonable? What determines whether someone is being sensible and reasonable? Would their intelligence matter? Would their understanding of the variables matter? Would the wisdom they have matter? Would perspective impact it? Would our understanding of God's reality, design law versus impose? Would all of these variables play into the circumstance to know whether someone's sensible or reasonable or not? And would where we are impact how we understand it? For instance, when Jesus refused to go to the Passover and publicly declare himself as his brothers encouraged him to do, Do you think his brothers thought Jesus was being sensible and reasonable? Or do you think that he was being foolish? He could get so many more followers if he went and did his miracles at the Passover and publicly declared himself. That's what they encouraged him to do. He was so unreasonable and insensible. How about when Jesus went to Jerusalem crucifixion weekend? Did his loyal disciples think he was being sensible and reasonable? If you read about it, they encouraged him not to go. Hey, they, they, they tried to stone you just a couple weeks ago. Uh, they're likely to kill uh, we, we probably better stay away from that place. And then what's Philip, I think it's Philip or Thomas, which one said it? I think Philip, or is it Thomas? One of them, one of those two said, well, let's go ahead. If he's going to die, we might as well die with him. <laughs> Remember that? Did they? Do you think at that moment they were thinking Jesus was being reasonable or sensible? How about... When Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part with me. How many of his disciples turned away at that point and left him? Why did they leave? Did they think, that's reasonable, that makes sense, that's very sensible? Or were they thinking, no way, this is, this is unreasonable? Was Jesus being unreasonable and, 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 and lacking sense to say these things? Does our maturity level, does our understanding of reality impact our ability to tell whether someone's being sensible or reasonable? Do our own biases, our own prejudices, our own beliefs impact our ability to understand? I tell you, I get this on, if you follow our Facebook page, you will see this happening almost every blog I write. Almost every blog I write, you'll see people responding like people responded to what Jesus was saying. Not that I'm claiming to be Jesus, I'm just saying that people will misunderstand and will think I'm saying something that I haven't even said and make accusations of all kinds because they don't understand. 
Why? Because they have their own biases, their own prejudices, their own presuppositions, their own level of maturity. The seven levels of moral development we've talked about. People at low level four have a hard time understanding levels five, six, and seven. It doesn't make sense to them at all. What about discerning? How can you tell whether someone in leadership has discernment or not? Would it require you to have discernment in order to tell whether they have discernment? (laughs) Followers of God's will. This certainly is a litmus test, right? I mean, this is it. If If they're a follower of God's will then we can trust that leader. Well, we certainly don't want leaders who refuse to follow God's will. That's a certainty. We absolutely don't. We want leaders that follow God's will. But when false messiahs come, as Jesus predicted, they will come. Who will they say they're following? Can you tell whether someone's a follower of God's will because they tell you they're a follower of God's will? How about this one? Can someone actually be a follower of God? And they really are. And they are following the will of God. And and they're following the will of God. And it's the right understanding. They're doing exactly what God has called them to do. And you're still not to follow them. For instance, can someone be called by God to a certain action, yet God has called you to a different action? You're to go some other place and do some other thing. You're not to follow that person. Is that possible? Yeah. So even if someone's following God's will, it doesn't mean you're necessary to follow, necessarily are to follow them. What if someone has genuine gifts of the Spirit, such as the gift of prophecy? Confirmed, understood, this person has the gift of prophecy. Certainly we could follow that person, right? So when the apostle Peter, not just the gift of prophecy, an apostle, studied at the feet of Jesus for three and a half years, endorsed and confirmed by him as his ambassador and representative, sent. When Peter came and refused to associate with the uncircumcised fellows, we should follow his example as he is a leader. We shouldn't question that, should we? Because he's gifted in ways we have not been gifted. He's empowered by the Spirit. The Pentecost, it fell on him. Who are we to question one anointed of the Lord? If the prophet, if the apostle said it, we should believe it. That settles it, right? Or should we stand up and go, hold on. Your gift is still gift. You're still gifted by the Spirit, but on this issue, you're wrong. Would we have the courage to do what Paul did and confront him publicly because he was wrong? How many Christians could do that to a confirmed prophet of the Lord? How many Adventists could do that? So what are we missing? Is there any element you can think of that would, would, would help us, would be required, that helps us differentiate a leader from God from an imposter? Well, would, leader, would, would these elements be helpful in enhancing our confidence in a leader? And a leader who understands the difference between God's design law versus imposed imperial human-made-up rules. They promote integrated truth, applying the integrative evidence-based approach to harmonizing scripture, science, and experience. In other words, they demonstrate a knowledge of how reality works, and they teach truths that are testable by you and make sense and are reasonable. So you are persuaded in your own mind, and you're not following because they have authority or position. You follow because it makes sense and it's testable, reproducible, and consistent with reality. 
They practice the principles of God. They present truth in love, but they leave people free without threat, without compulsion, without coercion. And if they may give warning, but the consequence of going outside of God's design is not a state or church inflicted pain or suffering. It's what being out of harmony with the laws of health do. With how God built reality, it damages you. How about understanding the controversy over God's character and methods? Demonstrate they can make evidence-based, not feeling-based decisions. They're aware of feelings, but they're not governed by feelings. They have a, a, a maturity, at least level six, understanding design law, but perhaps even better, level seven, understanding God's purposes. But they also have a record of outcomes that you can review and evaluate the, the, that their rhetoric comports with the actions taken. And the application of the principles or ideas they teach have redemptive, measurable outcomes. For instance, the law of liberty. I love teaching my patients that even if they don't believe in God because it's so testable, so reproducible, and it always brings healing results when it's applied. Always, always. It's always damaging when it's broken. So if someone doesn't actually know God, know God's methods, God's design laws upon which we built reality, don't understand the issues in the great controversy, then they may be honest, yet lead by wrong methods, wrong principles, and false ideas. They may be, have sincerity and enthusiasm, but go in wrong directions. They may be decisive, but their decisions may frequently be harmful. They may have a vision, but their vision is warped. They may have confidence, um, but it will be misplaced. They may seek to be just and fair, but their justice will be punitive, worldly and warped, like the Pharisees who stoned Stephen or sought or crucified Christ in the guise or the name of justice. They may claim to be reasonable, but will actually be unreasonable as they apply rules rather than practice principles. Principles of good leadership are often difficult to determine in people with whom we do not have a personal relationship. So the best approach that I recommend is to develop your own ability to reason, discern, which means that we have our own personal relationship with God. We know him for ourselves. That we understand God's character, designs, principles, purposes. That we have a working, working, working knowledge of Scripture meaning we use the integrative evidence-based approach and we understand how Scripture really works in reality. And then we examine the evidences of a person's achievements, the outcomes, along with their stated mission, their platform, their goals, their vision and, and of a proposed leader. And then we decide if there's someone whom we can support for their role that they're pursuing because we also share their goals, their visions, and support their mission and have evidence of their achievements. That's what I recommend. You know, we're in the last days of human history, and now more than ever, people need God, uh, uh, God people of God need discernment need to be able to tell who is coming and practicing God's methods and who is an imposter. And so I've got some quotes I want to go through. Uh, first is from the great controversy, uh, describing the final deception coming upon the world. 
And uh, it starts on page uh, 624. Uh, that's where uh, it starts, I believe. Yes, it starts on yeah, 624. And here's the first quote. And we're going to unpack this. It's going to be fair. I think you'll find this interesting. Fearful sights of a supernatural character will soon be revealed in the heavens in token of the power of miracle-working demons. The spirits of devils will go forth to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to fasten them in deception and urge them on to unite with Satan in his last struggle against the government of heaven. These agencies, rulers, and subjects will alike be deceived. I want to pause as you consider this. When you hear spirits of devils, what do you understand that to mean? Does it simply mean the attitudes of devils? They've got a bad spirit. It's that bad spirit that comes upon people. Bad attitude. Does it mean... Fallen angels in the room bringing and impressing upon human hearts and minds evil ideas and selfishness and bad influences. Does it mean ghosts or apparitions will appear uh, and, and speak to them? Does it mean all of this or none of this? Could it mean humans with Satan's worldview, Satan's values and Satan's methods going to other world leaders to influence them with the spirit of devils? Could it mean fallen angels presenting themselves in the form of human beings? We have accounts in the Bible of God's angels at times coming to human beings in the form of human beings. Can evil angels present themselves in the form of humans that we think we're talking to a human? There's account in scripture of that. When Satan appeared as Samuel to, um, to Saul. Yeah, that was more of an apparition. I would call that an apparition, impersonating impersonating Samuel. I don't believe he was there physically. I think the witch of Endor called up the apparition. It says he came up from below. I think that was an apparition um, more, more than an actual physical being there in physical form. I'm talking about angels actually manifesting in physical form. You could touch them. You could hug them. They are, in all parents' measurements, human. Angels of God appeared in that way. Well, as you consider that, here's uh, from that same author who wrote The Great Controversy out of uh, a book called Last Day Events, page 160, the following. Satan will use every opportunity to seduce men from their allegiance to God. He and the angels who fell with him will appear on earth as men seeking to deceive. And who are they seeking to deceive? The kings and leaders of the earth. Consider this quote from Last Day Events, page 160. Evil angels in the form of men will talk with those who know the truth. They will misrepresent and misconstrue the statements of the messengers of God. Notice that the devils go out to the leaders of the world seeking to deceive. As men. As men. But the devils go to those who know the truth as men and talk with them and then go out and misrepresent them. I don't know whether this has happened to me or anybody in our organization, meaning a devil was, we were talking to a devil rather than a person, but I can tell you I've had conversations with people 
who have then turned around and gone immediately out and misrepresented and misconstrued everything I said. I remember one case of a pastor that after we had our conversation, he looked me in the eye, shook my hand, and said, I don't disagree. In fact, I agree with everything you said. And that very afternoon, he went to our website and posted a long thing on our website where, when we had places where people could respond about how I teach heresy. Did this very thing, misrepresented everything I teach, after telling me he agreed. I don't know if that was just a human being or not. I think it was. My view is it was just a human being. But this author says that devils will come in the form of men and do this. So devils will go to the world leaders, deceive them, enlist them to unite with Satan in the final struggle against Kevin. What method will the devil use? And what will that final struggle be over? Well, in that same book, The Great Controversy, on a different page, this is uh, page 624, this is page 591, a few pages before, um, the author writes this. Satan's policy, policy, Satan's policy in this final conflict with God's people is the same that he employed in the opening of the great controversy in heaven. He professed to be seeking to promote the stability of the divine government while secretly bending every effort to secure its overthrow. What method here? In the final deception, Satan will move upon world leaders to seek to save the planet, save the earth, make things better. But their policies and practices will actually destroy it. This is so obvious to me right now. It's happening in the world. It is like black and white. It is so clear to me. This uh, Anybody who understands God's design law can see this happening right now today. Here in America and around the world. I write about it. I speak about it. Yet people write me all the time, email me all the time, defending the deception. Failing to see the lie. They claim that I am opposing practices and principles that are designed to save and I'm wanting to hurt people because I'm exposing. No, understand. These issues happening in the world, these proclamations going forth that's out to help, if you look at the consequences when they go into practice, they injure and they harm. They undermine. They don't help. Continuing on with the quote from, from the book Great Controversy. And the very work which he, the devil, he was thus endeavoring to accomplish, he charged upon the loyal angels. And you, if you haven't seen this happening, you have, your eyes are not open. And you should pray for the eyes to have of the Holy Spirit for discernment. Because I can tell you it is so obvious that the very evils being perpetrated by people in our societies are then turned around and projected and blamed upon those who are trying to stop the evils from happening. I won't even go into more of that. Because if I do, those who can't see will think that I'm the problem. Those who have eyes to see, see, and ears to hear, hear. Continuing on with the quote. The same policy of deception has marked the history of the Romish church. It has professed to act as the vicegerent of heaven while seeking to exalt itself above God and to change his law. What is the core principle, core principle of Rome? Imperialism. That's its core principle. 
impose laws that can be changed, not design laws. And with imposed laws always come authoritarianism, hierarchical government, top-down control, few a few ruling elites dominating and exploiting the masses. This was ancient pagan Rome. It's Papal Rome, look at its structure, it's hierarchical, it's authoritarian, it's rules-driven, it's imperial, and it's the form of every earthly government. That is why they're beastly. It is the kingdom of Satan. They make up their rules, which are contrary to God's design laws, and then enforce them under the penalty of the state. Those who don't comply are accused of being lawbreakers and fined, have their businesses closed, imprisoned, all under the guise of saving lives, protecting the planet, creating a better better and safer world. They always end up with the few ruling elites, however, dominating and exploiting the masses. God's government is just the opposite. The lawgiver, the creator, humbles himself and sacrifices himself to lift up the masses. He doesn't take from us to raise him up. He gives from himself to raise us up. Notice, all of these systems claiming to make the world better will functionally always have a few ruling elites that are the ones who are empowered and enriched off the backs of the masses. And you can go back through history, whether it's the pharaohs, whether it's the emperors of China or Japan, whether it's the uh, nation state, which is the emperors of, of Rome or the nation states of Europe, or communism. Communism always has the elite Communist Party leaders uh, living high, while the look, just look at what's happened in North Korea. Look at China. It's always the case. Few ruling elites. They can call it what they want. They can claim it's for the good of the masses. It's not. It's always exploitive. Continuing on the code out of the Great Controversy. Under the rule of Rome, those who suffered death for their fidelity to the gospel were denounced as evildoers. They were declared to be in league with Satan. And every possible means was employed to cover them with reproach, to cause them to appear in the eyes of the people, and even to themselves as the vilest criminals. So it will be now. While Satan seeks to destroy those who honor God's law, he will cause them to be accused as lawbreakers as men who are dishonoring God and bringing judgments upon the world. What are Satan's methods? He deceives the leaders of the world to do his bidding by getting them to believe that imposed law, imperialism, rule enforcement, threats, uh, uh, and threats are righteous. It's the right way. Law and order. And we can have a new world if we just pass the right laws and get the right people in office. And we can just hold people accountable. And we can make sure that people don't go out of their homes when they're not supposed to. And, of course, all those rules that we're going to pass in our society, if we're the office holder, the governor, well, it doesn't apply to us. We can have our, our, our dinners. We can have our parties. We can have our weddings. We can have, because we are the elite. It only applies to everybody else. We're, we're exempted. You don't see this happening in society? <laughs> As a result of all of this, God's methods, design laws are being violated. Love is destroyed. The love of many wax cold. Fear is incited. Division happens. God's spirit is slowly withdrawn as hearts are hardening. 
Satan gains more control over nature, and there's more natural disasters, more pestilences, more violence occurring in society. And all of these are alleged to be on those people who won't comply with the law. If you'd only keep the law. So we need to give you more fines. We need to shut your businesses down. We need to put you in prison. Because we have to do this to be safe. Going back, now that, that was all of that was an aside from that first paragraph in our original quote. Now we're going back to the original quote, 624. Great Talking about devils going out to the kings of the earth to deceive them. How are they doing it? We just went through a whole, hopefully evidence-based, reasoned out explanation of how they deceive and the methods they use. Now we're going back to the quote. Because we're all talking about what leader should you follow? Persons will arise pretending to be Christ himself and claiming the title and worship which belongs to the world's redeemer. They will perform wonderful miracles of healing and will profess to have revelations from heaven contradicting the testimony of scriptures. Again, will all these persons, all of these persons are coming in human form. Will they all be human or will some of these be Devils in the form of human that are claiming to be messiahs. Imagine the power of such a deception occurring today. People in multiple ICUs around the country dying of COVID, miraculously healed by the thousands by these people claiming to be the messiah. How many would be deceived by this? What testimony of scripture do you think that will contradict Won't it be the character of God, his methods? Ultimately, they will have rule enforcement, Roman system of government. This is the law. You must obey or we must punish. We don't want to punish. We love you. We're here to help you. But if you don't obey, justice requires that we punish. This is the, the ultimate deception and the misrepresentation of God they're going to bring. And if we just returned to faithfulness, if we just obeyed the law, we would all be safe. How many would go along with the idea that we must punish the lawbreaker? How many people are going along with it now? And I don't know if you understand this. I'm talking the, the people who won't shut their business, the people who don't want to wear a mask, the people who don't want to comply. And do you understand that almost, I want to say all, but many of these so-called restrictions on liberty are illegal. They actually have no legal basis for making them. Or the, the, their edicts put out by people in office as if they are legal, but there's no due process. Do you notice? There's no due process for, for most people to be able to say, hold on, uh, this is not legal. This rule you've put on is violating this statute or this law. For instance, in Tennessee, in order for the health department to actually put on the mandates that they put on us, there is a requirement in law that they actually identify the specific pathogen that we're being protected against or being quarantined for. And the specific pathogen has to be named and identified, which it hasn't been. There's multiple different COVID vi viruses, and the specific COVID hasn't actually been put into the... Uh, so, on and on we could go. So you're seeing... What's happening is authority is being used to restrict liberty, even in violation of law in many places. And why? And I will tell you, I will get it. People will be emailing me. Don't you want to save lives? Yeah, get your mind around that. 
What do you think the devil's going to be telling every? Just keep, listen to this, these quotes that I'm reading going to unfold. You're going to see the final deception is Satan's coming to save everyone's life. He's coming as the Messiah to save your life. And we just have to imprison and punish those people who won't, won't follow the law. And I get the same argument from people over this. As the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. The other false Christs come first, and then Satan comes, so the Bible can be fulfilled that false Christ preceded the true Christ. The church has long professed to look for the Savior's advent and the consummation of her hopes. Now the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ has come. In different parts of the earth, Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of dazzling brightness resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in Revelation. The glory surrounds him, the glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything mortal eyes have yet beheld. What method is the devil using here? Signs. Wonders, miracles, charisma, charm, which plays on the emotions, thrills the heart, but does not bring enlightenment and actually shuts down reason and thinking. That's the method. <gasps> oh. Continuing on with the quote. They shout. The shout of triumph rings out in the air. Christ has come. Christ has come. The people prostrate themselves in adoration before him while he lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing upon them. As Christ blessed his disciples when he was upon the earth, his voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. In gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious, heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. What leadership qualities will Satan present? He will appear honest. He will appear sincere, humble, kind, gentle, compassionate, gracious, presenting the same truths Jesus spoke as recorded in the Bible. Should we follow him? How will we know not to? Well, I'm watching his feet. <laughs> if his feet are on the ground, he's a fraud. Because we know that after Jesus ascended, because we know that after Jesus ascended on resurrection morning, when he came back and met the, the disciples in the upper room, his feet weren't on the ground. When he met them on the beach and walked with them on the beach, his feet weren't on the ground, were they? Oh, wait a minute. They actually were. We have no record that he floated along. I'm pretty certain that if he'd been floating around, that would have been recorded. <laughs> it wasn't. There was no special. When he walked on water, we got that. That was there. Recorded. Okay. When he ascended, it was recorded. But here he's on the beach. And he was, I think it probably even says he walked with Peter on the beach. Recently declared that his feet would not be in. Yeah, there you go. Just watch the feet and you'll be safe. <laughs> Continuing on. Just notice. Just notice all the qualities that you valued earlier. He's going to appear to have, have them. It's going to appear to have them. Continuing on. He heals the diseases of the people. Whoa. This is an act of love. He gives of his energies. To heal people, loving them. Isn't that a leadership quality we value? 
Why would we not follow him? Next, the author exposes one action that could slash would expose him. Let's see if you can nail it as I read it. And then, in his assumed character of Christ, he claims to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday and commands all to hallow the day which he has blessed. End the quote. What is the action here described? And what's the deception? The specific action is, the specific action is, he claims to change the day from Sabbath to Sunday. But what's the actual deception? God's law is changeable. There you go. The actual deception. He can change the day from Sabbath to Sunday because God's law is amendable or changeable. You can't change what's not amendable. It would, it, understand what I'm trying to say here. Imagine if he stood up. For those with discernment who understand God's law, hearing him say that would be like hearing him, after all these miracles, say, and I have changed the law of respiration. You're not required to breathe now. I want everyone to tie a plastic bag over their head and no longer breathe. If you love me, you'll follow my commands. Now, there might be some down in Jonestown, okay, there might be some deluded souls who will believe that and put that plastic bag over their head. The real deception is not specifically the day. It's the underlying meaning of what that means about God and his government if it were true. If it were true, God runs his universe like Rome. He makes up rules, he changes them when he wants, and he enforces them with punishment. That's the real deception. God is like this person. That's how Satan operates. And if you go along with it, then you do worship him as your God. This is our God. We have waited for him. This is the God the Jews wanted. Come down off the cross. Kill the Romans with power. We'll, we'll follow you. That's what the world wants. A God of power who will kill enemies with might and power. That's what they want. So many, many will follow us. Only the elect. Only the remnant, only those who know God, who are faithful to the testimony of Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, will not be deceived by this. The world and what you see happening in the world right now is conditioning people to understand it's not about COVID. And it's not about the rules put in force by the, the, uh, the various governments and states about COVID. It's not about that. Those are all being done to condition you to accept those types of methods as right. That's right. That makes sense. That's good. We're saving lives by doing this. It's righteous to do. So that when he comes along and says the same thing on a different issue, people go, that's right. That's right. The law says it. we got to enforce it. we got to save lives. And we must be compliant. And we must be compliant. Sunday's lesson, boy, 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 we got a bunch of, we just barely scratched the surface. Sunday's lesson about uh, Uzziah. Uh, and uh, let's just read number one and two. Uh, although Uzziah's reign was long and prosperous, when he had become strong and grew proud, uh, to, but he became strong and grew proud to his destruction and attempted to offer incense in the temple. When the priest rightly stopped him because he was not authorized as a priestly descendant of Aaron, the king became angry. At that moment, when the king refused reproof, the Lord immediately struck him with leprosy, which he had to the day of his death, 
and being a leper, a leprous, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. How ironic that Isaiah saw a vision of pure of the pure immortal divine king in his house, temple, in the very year of the impure human king died. There is a striking contrast between Uzziah and Isaiah. Uzziah uh, reached for the holiness presumptuously for the wrong reason, pride, and instead became ritually impure so that he was cut off from from holiness. Isaiah, on the other hand, allowed God's holiness to reach him. He humbly admitted his weakness and yearned for more, more purity. So question... Why did Uzziah get leprosy, or why did the Lord strike him with leprosy? Let's put it that way. Was it because Uzziah broke a rule and tried to do only what priests could do? Is that why? Everybody speak at once, please. (laughs) No. If so, why did David not get struck with leprosy? Why didn't David, or why didn't David get struck with leprosy when he went in, took the showbread, fed it to his men, and ate it himself when it was only authorized for the priests to do it? He didn't get struck with leprosy. Why? Is there any saving value in the rituals of the Old Testament? There are none. They were not required for salvation. If people think they were required for salvation, answer the question, how were people saved during the 70-year captivity when Daniel and his friends were in Babylon and no one was doing any uh, temple sacrifices because the temple didn't exist at that time? Were, Were no one saved? It was impossible. Can't get saved now. No, no, No temple to, to do our sacrifices. People were still being saved. Temple was not required. What was required was what the temple taught. So the purpose of the temple, it was theater. It was a stage. The temple's a grand stage. It had great, cool props, props like we've never seen. Neat costumes and a script that we call scripture. It's a script. It's what it is. Because they're acting a play. It's a drama. It's theater. And if you understand the theater, then you understand exactly why Uzziah was struck with leprosy and why David was not. You understand exactly. So let's talk about it. In, in, let's talk about what it all means, the larger reality. In, the, in this service, the priest, the daily priests in their white robes act out or symbolically represent what? Priesthood of believers. Priesthood of believers. The high priest represents Christ. The daily, the daily priest in their white robes represent the priesthood of believers, and the white robes represent the righteousness of Christ, or the character of Christ that we possess as a true convert to Christ. So that's what that represents, the holiness. The showbread represents, okay, partially. It represents, if you just said the word, that's a little more closer, it represents the word of God, written and, written and living. Jesus said, I am the manna or the bread that has come down from heaven, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. So the, the showbread represents, I would, I would not argue with the written word, but ultimately it represents the living word, and Jesus is the word made flesh. Okay, So it represents Jesus, ultimately our Savior, not a text, but Jesus revealed the truth in the text. So there's an aspect that's true too. Okay, so... There are 12 loaves because the 12 loaves, a loaf for each one of the 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes symbolically represent, in the theater, all the people of the world. So in the theater, the bread of heaven, or Jesus, is sufficient to provide spiritual nurturance or the remedy or salvation to all the peoples of the world who will partake of it. But only those who accept him can partake, and so every Sabbath... 
the priest in their white robes, which represent the converted, those from the world that have converted to Christ, are now represented in the white robes. They go in to the holy place, which represents the church, all solid gold. Gold is purity. The, and in church is the word, the lamp. And the main, stain, main central lamp represents Jesus. And the six little other ones represent all the converted people. The number of a man is six. So man is connected to Christ, six, uh, six. And when we're connected to Christ, then we are purified and become golden. And the oil represents the spirit. And it burns, and we are to be lights into the world to lighten them. So the lampstand represents the word of God that burns in the hearts of the believers as we're connected to Christ, and the Holy Spirit fills and indwells us, and so we are to lighten the world. So this is the church, and every Sabbath, the believers in Christ join together in the holy place or the church to partake of the bread. That's when they ate it. They ate it once a week in union with their high priest, and the high priest represents Jesus. So we're to come together on Sabbath, join with Jesus, and partake of the word, partake of him, his righteousness, and his truth. That's what was represented. And so, when David goes in and takes the showbread, he's symbolically taking the bread of life and, part, and ingesting it as over his men. And that brings life. Only by taking of Christ do you have life. And so, it, that's why. That he wasn't harmed. Why did Uzziah, though, get leprosy? Well, he went to burn incense on the altar. Now, what does incense... Uh, the golden altar represents the converted heart. And incense represents the prayers of the righteous mixed with the sweet fragrance of Christ-like character because they're converted. That's why the priests are the ones who burn the, because they're the converted. Uzziah, though, he comes in as an unconverted person, heart unrenewed by God, arrogant, prideful, unconverted, seeking to displace the holy ones of God. This is what he seeks to do. He's not coming in as a humble servant of God who loves the Lord and just wants to offer praise to God. He's coming in arrogantly, prideful. Yes, exactly. And so what is, so he's coming in sinfully. And what does in the symbolism of the Bible, so we're on stage, we're acting out, we're in theater, if he's insisting, he's forcing his way on stage. He's not one of the actors. He's not supposed to be here in the drama at this point. But he forces his way on stage, and he wants to act anyway. So what, and he's acting the role of a humble, righteous person, or is he acting, living the role of a rebellious, selfish person? And what is the symbol of selfishness and sin in the Bible? Leprosy. And so God says, look, I warned you, don't come on stage. But if you insist, I'll let you have the role that you're, you're fit to act for. And you're rebellious and you're hard-hearted. And so you're insensitive. You won't listen to the Spirit. So you will have the symbol of that and you will act that out the rest of your life. So God respected his decision and gave him what he asked for. That doesn't mean he's lost eternally. It also gave him opportunity to go back, reflect, and repent. Imagine the consequence to him. He, he, it was an opportunity for genuine repentance. Now, whether he did or not, we don't know. He may have hardened his heart and been angry at God for it, as prideful people often do, as Pharaoh did. But it certainly gave him an opportunity to reflect, didn't it? Monday's lesson says, Notice what happens 
here first, the first four verses of Isaiah 6, the king dies during great, uh, great political turmoil. The Assyrians are in the warpath. For Isaiah, it could have been a fearful time when he was not sure who was in control. A change of leadership triggers fear in the populace. Questions of what's going to happen, who's in control. Do we ever face situations like that when changes of leadership occur in our world? Well, who's in control? In order to ask the, answer the question, you have to ask, of what? I will tell you, God controls what God controls, and we control what we control. If you, and if you don't know the difference, then you'll be confused, and you will have all types of myth, myth and superstition. And you will teach things like, well, that hurricane was God punishing for sin because God is in control. That child died in that car wreck. It was God's will. God was in control. You'll teach all types of very, very ugly and harsh and wrong things about God if you don't understand what God controls and what he does not control. God controls himself and his laws, which are design laws, sustaining all reality, sustaining the universe constantly. But does God control people or angels? Does God control nations? Well, yes, it says he he lifts up, he puts on kings, he overthrows kings, and God controls... Really? So God was in control when the Nazis killed 6 million Jews in the ovens. That was God controlling that. That was not God controlling that. What happens when we surrender to God and we're we're spirit-controlled? We're controlled by the spirit. Does that mean that we become puppets? How about you read the book that says... I want God to be in control. I want him to be in the driver's seat of my life. Every time I'm in the driver's seat, I wreck. And every time I wreck, I cry out to the Lord. And when when I cry out to the Lord, he says, slide over and let me drive. And when I let the Lord drive, I get back on the road. But then things are going smooth and I take over the wheel and I drive again and I wreck. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Is that how it works? The Lord is inside your head steering the decisions. In other words, Deciding whether you turn left or turn, not telling you, giving you directions, and you're driving. Lord says, "Hey, take a right up here. Don't go left. That's a bad direction. Don't, don't, don't do that." And you're driving. You turn. That's that's one thing. Versus, Lord, I'd like to go left. No, no, that's a bad way. I'm turning us right. Is that how it works? Which ways it work? The Lord guides. The Lord directs. But who turns? Who decides? Through the Spirit itself. So Wendell, Wendell's going right where we're going. Thank you, Wendell. So when the Holy Spirit has his way in our life, we get certain fruits. The the, the Holy Spirit heals, restores us back to God's design, and we gain mastery. We gain abilities. One of those, the last, is self-control, not God-control. The Holy Spirit restores within us the ability to exercise enkratia, and within, krat, authority, like democrat or autocrat, authority within. We have the ability to exercise authority within ourselves to be self-governed. 
We will be restored to self-control, operating in harmony with God and his methods and principles because his law, which are design principles for life, are written in our hearts and minds. That's what happens. It's healing restorative. Yes, question. So the motivation, I guess what you're saying, motivation is the Holy Spirit inside of us helping us to do... I'm having a hard time on that. Okay. What... He wants us to do. I mean, this, this. Okay. So, are you having a hard time with, I'm not sure which decision to make versus, I'm not sure who's making the decision? So is it, I know it's me making the decision, not the Lord. He's not, I'm not a puppet, but I'm not sure sometimes which decision is the one I need to make. Or is it, I'm not sure if I'm actually the one making the decision. Maybe God's the one making the decision in me. Which is your question? Well, I'll let you reflect on that. <laughs> You're going to need to study that out for yourself. Okay. All righty. Well, if, if God is making the decisions and you aren't, are you a free being? No. Or are you a puppet? Yes. And if you're a puppet, a robot, a programmed computer, can you love? No. So God sustains his laws, all of them. One of those laws is the law of liberty. He sustains it. He maintains it. Because if we don't have genuine freedom, we can't love. Love doesn't exist. So God, under the umbrella of liberty, is operating within the parameters of how liberty works to bring about his ultimate goal, which is restoration of perfect righteousness in his universe. But under that umbrella, he gives people and devils real freedom to reject his methods and violate his designs for life and injure and hurt other people. God is not doing that. We do that. And we suffer the consequence. And sometimes other people can suffer on this earth because of the abuses, but their conscience, understand this, somebody can hurt your body. Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but can't destroy the soul, Matthew 10, 28. Somebody hurts your body. Somebody can hurt your mind, your, your brain, your relationships, your emotions, but only you can hurt your soul. Only you can sear your conscience. Only you can ultimately destroy your character. The devil can trick you, deceive you like he did Eve, but he couldn't hurt Eve's conscience, soul, or character, or Adam's. He can only trick them into taking actions that hurt themselves. And we have to have differentiate the difference between being injured by someone else physically, emotionally, relationally. How's a relational injury? By... David hurt Uriah's marriage. Before he murdered Uriah, he hurt his marriage. He hurt his relationship, didn't he? He hurt him relationally. Okay? He hurt Bathsheba's relationship with her husband by seducing her. Okay? So we can be hurt relationally. Bathsheba's participation then hurt her. Now, if she was just raped, that was one thing. Her conscience would be clear. Her psyche would be hurt. Her relationship may be hurt. But her soul would be unsullied. She would be clear if she had been raped. Being seduced and then participating, she, she injures herself. Do you see the difference? Okay? And so we have to differentiate why God allows these things because of the law of liberty. He wants to restore us back to his original design, which requires we retain our individuality in the healing process participating with him. I'm a recovered drug addict alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And when I hit my bottom... I made the decision, you know, I can't do this because before I had no power. Mm -hmm. 
after I made the decision for him mm-hmm. to come in and mm-hmm. control me. Mm-hmm. Nope, he doesn't control you. He empowers you. It's two different things. Empowers. Empowers. No. So I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're clarifying now. Many people get the confusion. They ask for power all the time. Lord, give me the power. Give me the power. Give me the power. Okay. Here's the way the Holy Spirit works. God's Spirit works as the Spirit of truth and love. He brings truth to our minds on various subject matters, addiction or whatever it might be, in ways that we can comprehend will often bring a sense of conviction so we have clarity on what we know is healthy and what we know is not, what we know we need to do, what we know we shouldn't do. The Holy Spirit will bring us to decision points in our life. And then we are left with complete liberty to choose the healthy or not. That's completely up to us. When we choose the healthy... Then we receive the power to walk the journey. But we don't get the power until we actually choose the truth that has been revealed to us. And many people want the power before they make the choice. You don't get power until you've chosen the truth. God doesn't empower people to promote lies, to journey down destructive pathways. He only empowers people with truth, to promote truth, and to journey down healthy paths. So we have to choose those paths, and then we receive the power. Does that make sense now? All righty. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your spirit of truth and love to enlighten and to empower. And we just pray wisdom and discernment to know the choices we each individually need to make so that we can participate in the plan and the path that you've uh, outlined for our lives and that we can uh, join together corporately to share a end-time message to set hearts and minds free so that we can lighten this world with the gospel message of your true kingdom that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.